1: Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Friday, August 27th, 2021. I'm Ash Bennington, joined by our own Jack Farley and our guest today, Hedge Fund Telemetry's Tom Thornton. Here's what we're looking at. Jackson Hole Symposium underway. Uh, In remarks at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium, Fed Chair Jay Powell said that the US economy has made, quote, clear progress toward maximum employment while adding that substantial slack remains in the labor market. Powell went on to say that the Fed has seen more progress in economic growth, uh, suggesting that the Fed may find it appropriate to withdraw to continue the taper, or to begin the taper, I should say, uh, in uh, this year, in 2021. Uh, the chair also reaffirmed uh, that even asset after asset purchases end, uh, our elevating holdings uh, of securities uh, will continue uh, to continue to, quote, support accommodative financial conditions. Jack, what are you looking at?
2: Well, Ash, the market loved the news. The market uh, liked what Jay Powell had to say, the Nasdaq soaring higher on his address, Uh, The dovish remarks took some gas out of the dollar and eased the VIX 2.5 points, now standing at about 16. Treasury notes and bonds rallied modestly, with yields falling most precipitously at the belly of the curve. Ash?
1: Yeah. So let's take a look at PCE uh, and personal income and consumption expenditures. Personal income rises considerably for July, up 1.1% month over month. It's a blowout over the consensus range, uh, which was minus 1.5 to positive 0.6. This is from a prior month rise of 0.1%. Prior month revised up to 0.2%. Personal consumption expenditures, it's a miss up 0.3% actual month over month, uh, a range of 0.2% to 0.9%. Prior month, up 1.1%, up revised 1.2%. So You see this strange thing happening here where you see effectively personal income and personal consumption expenditures moving in opposite directions relative to the consensus, relative to prior month. What does it mean? We'll talk a little bit more about that. By the way, pce uh, PCE price index up zero point three percent month over month, Dead center of the range, core PCE price index up zero point four percent month over month, also center of the range.
2: Jack Ash uh, well, I'll start by uh, introducing our guest, Tom Thornton. Tom, you had a firebrand of a note I'll just uh, and, um from hedge fund telemetry, a phenomenal piece that I think The people watching right now are going to be very interested to hear you elaborate on this. I'll just quote from your piece right now, quote, the Fed with Powell has created the largest bubble in history, even before COVID, and ramped it up exponentially with the massive COVID stimulus response. Getting out of this mess of, quote, temporary measures is not an option without severe pain. Tom, walk us through that. What did you mean by that? And can you apply it today to Powell's remarks uh, today?
3: All right, well, if anybody was paying attention to financial TV, it was, you had a bunch of, thanks for having me here, guys, uh, of Fed heads, uh, the governors were out there just talking as hawkish as they ever could, and then you had Powell being the good cop, so you had the governors as the bad cop, and Powell as the good cop, becoming very, very, or came out very, very dovish. And, you know, the Fed did something better than they did the last time uh, they started the taper, and the taper tantrum was avoided because they really telegraphed to the markets that they're going to taper, and it was very clear and obvious with uh, the markets going up, employment dropping. Um, you had much better uh, economic news. You had really very strong inflation data, which they call transitory. Uh, so, here's I I, I kind of had a rant today on on Powell and some of the things that I, I'm thinking about Powell is he might go down as the worst Fed chairman in all of history and. Let's just take a step back and look. And here we are at 4,500 S&P. The Nasdaq's at 15,000. The Dow is at I have 35,000, and the markets are up 100% off the COVID lows. Uh, And that's when Powell said the markets weren't functioning properly, and that was because what's known as sellers and price discovery. So he you know when it's functioning properly it's going up and when it's going down it's not functioning properly. So he's basically got his foot to you know pedal to the metal with QE at 120 billion dollars a month. And there's a lot of people that say oh the Fed is behind because we're going to have this reopening which we've had and then all of a sudden, it's going to become more normal. And I've talked about this a bunch of times on Real Vision. So maybe the Fed is behind the curve. And now that the big bad worry and question, if the Fed is going to taper, which I think most people know, but it's been basically confirmed by Powell on September 20th, they'll give the details how much, when is it going to start? But now here, we have this window, and the market's just ripped higher, and everybody's so happy, and la-di-da, valuations are high, uh, markets are overbought, they're overloved, sentiment's super high. And if you look at a weekly chart of the S&P or the uh, NASDAQ 100, it's this nice narrow range straight up. And we haven't had a 5% pullback. Uh, since November. And I, I came on here a few weeks ago, and I said, OK, we might have an opportunity here because we've got DeMarc exhaustions on the daily. Sentiment's high. We got a 3% pullback. And that's been kind of the what we've seen in the buy-the-dip people have come in really quick. But the thing that I find really remarkable is that we're here at these market levels, and the Fed is just going nuts continuously with Stimulus, uh, QE. And then I thought this week, something that I had a lot of people, you know, it's got a lot of discussion, you know, should the Fed taper? And I think, yeah, they should, they should taper. But taper mortgage backed securities. You don't need to be buying $40 billion worth of mortgage backed securities because it's going to crowd out the little guy who, you know, we have, you know, the Fed is not doing anything for income and Inequality or in the house prices have gone up, there's low inventories, it's been a lot of pull forward. But cut that out. Okay, we can do that. But here's another little dilemma. Over the last six months, nine months, the Fed has bought a lot of treasury issuance. And now this issuance is not necessarily new issuance, it's a lot of roll. And they bought a lot of, you know, a lot of short-term T-bills or sold a lot of T-bills. But coming in the next six months, the Fed is going to have to issue. And the Treasury's um, cash balance, basically, is in the $300 billion right now. And that's getting low. And if we keep at this pace without a debt ceiling increase, which that's kabuki theater, because they always raise the debt ceiling after a lot of political yada, yada, yada. So they're going to issue, the Treasury's going to issue a lot more debt. A lot more new debt to pay for all the stuff that the, the fiscal stuff they're doing, and it's going to cost a lot. So who's going to buy all those bonds when they're issued? Because the Fed's been, I guess you know 20, 25 percent sized buyer of all this debt. So if they do QE and they're not there, you know what's going to happen with rates? It, you know it's probably not gonna, the bond auctions are probably not going to go that well. And rates have to spike a little higher. So, if that happens, that's actually deflationary because if interest rates go up, it's going to slow things and deflate what's been happening. And people think, well, interest rates going up, it's inflationary, but it actually hurts the lender or the borrowers. And that can be across the board from Homeowners, new homeowners, or refis, or corporates, or even the U.S. Treasury. So I'm rambling on here, but that's been my gist of what's going on with the Fed and some of the risks that I see out there. So I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this: the the problem I see is everybody knows the Fed's going to do what they're going to do now, and now we have a window of months before the Fed actually does do the taper, and tapering $15 billion is a really small amount in the grand scheme of things, which is what a lot of people think they're going to start with. Right. But now, it opens up the door for other catalysts to spook the market. Now, let's just say it's earnings slowing. That could happen, and I think that is another risk. We've seen a couple companies, major ones. Uh, Autodesk had a awful number. Guidance was weak. Target's guidance was weak, and these are bellwethers because Autodesk sells to builders and architects for new new construction, and Target sells to everybody out there that buys general merchandise. So that's. My big concern that we're gonna see some new catalysts. It could be Delta, it could be geopolitical. Um, you know, my big black swan is the China-Taiwan situation becomes something. Yeah. I, I don't know, but I just feel like the market is very vulnerable to almost the littlest shock, something out there that we don't know yet.
1: Yeah.
0: You're a podcast listener and this is a podcast ad.
1: Yeah. You know, Tommy, that's a Tom very a nuanced very, yeah. and subtle view of this, uh, these events in this market. Let me belabor the obvious here a little bit, maybe, uh, just to follow up on what you said about the slow taper. I mean, if we're talking about gradually withdrawing the rate at which the Fed is expanding the balance sheet beginning this year, Uh, and then slowly continuing to roll off, as I said at the open of the show, the Fed reaffirming uh, in the person of Jay Powell today uh, that the balance sheet is going to remain intact. The balance sheet isn't going to be unwound, they're just going to slow the rate uh, at which the balance sheet is expanded, you know, we talk about this as being hawkish, but what we're talking about, really, fundamentally, particularly for someone uh, who doesn't follow the Fed nearly as closely as you do, uh, the retail investor out there who's hearing this, this isn't really hawkishness. This is just gradually becoming less extremely dovish,
3: less extremely dovish. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I think Bernanke said something very similar to that. That. You know, they weren't going to, it wasn't like they were going to, everything was going to roll off. I mean, they were just going to let things roll off as they mature. Yeah, well, we know better because the market is addicted to Fed stimulus. And what, let's just remember like my friend Dean Kernet said something interesting the other day. He said, the Fed has been able to use for their cover. Ah, uh, below inflation targets. Their targets are still below inflation, so they can keep rates at zero. They can do QE and all that. Now, what happens if that something in the markets happen? What are they going to do? Are they going to? Uh, we're going to add another twenty-five billion dollars in QE. I mean, will that really matter? I mean, I don't think it's going to matter. It's not going to solve a lot of the problems that. People think the Fed is solving. I don't think the Fed is solving the employment problem at all. I, I, you know, okay, fine. They think they do. They're not solving climate, the climate change crisis. I mean, we get these dumb questions by from all the senators and Congress people. What are you doing for climate crisis? Well, we're doing nothing. There's nothing. They're not doing anything for income inequality. They're making it worse, and that's a real problem. You know, markets are going up, stock buybacks are ripping, and and look, people are selling their own stock. And we talked about one that uh, that someone sold a little chunk of their own stock. Oh, you're referring to Tim Cook of Apple. Yeah, Tim Apple as uh, Trump. This <laughs> <laughs> Trump called him one time. He sold he sold three hundred or seven hundred and fifty million dollars worth of Apple stock this week. Why? Why would he sell that much today? I mean, maybe he's, you know, got some expenses. He's going to buy a new house, um, country. Um, I don't know. You know, a new yacht. I I don't know, but. It, maybe it's just coming to a point where Apple's growth rate may just start to slow a little. They've got their iPhone refresh. It's nothing new. It's going to be the same, same look to this one. Maybe a little faster and you know sexier. But you know, it's like someone used to say to me, "Oh, Apple just came out with this new phone, and and you got to get it." It's like, well, I just married this one, but this girlfriend is hot. You got to have it. It's like nothing really changes for people to like say, oh, I'm going to go out and spend $1,200 on a new phone or $1,000. Nothing is really changing in that regard. Yeah. And the chip shortage, I kind of heard some stories that Apple may start to suffer with the chip shortage and they may raise prices on their iPhone. I mean, in some of their products, it's possible. I mean, they're going to probably $30 cable. 1 meter cable they're going to raise from $30 to $40. It's it's insane. But he's selling stock. You know, a lot of CEOs have been pretty active uh, selling stock. You know, Apple stock didn't really get hit this week and he sold a fair amount. And I'm pretty sure that the Apple buyback guy was basically had his elbow on the buy button all day when when Tim was selling stock <laughs> at Fidelity. And anyway, it's just um you know it'll be interesting to see if Tim's uh, a little early on this. They usually are a little early, maybe one quarter,
1: yeah, that'd be one hell of a house. Uh, Jack, jump in a lot of important points from Tom.
2: Oh, I totally agree with Tom. I think it's an undisputable fact that under quantitative easing uh the support of at, uh, asset prices tend to be owned by wealthier people almost by definition, and as such, it can tend to exacerbate wealth inequality. I think that uh, the Fed can, via quantitative easing, exacerbate wealth inequality and at the same time support the job market and uh, the working class, working people, whatever you want to call it. Because when stock prices go down and CEOs are tied to their stock prices, their compensation is tied to the stock price and that stock price is tied to corporate earnings. They then let go of a ton of people. And then those people can't afford to buy goods and services. So then it becomes the, this spiral out of control. So I think. That um, I I think the Fed would probably acknowledge and agree with us, uh, Tom, that the Fed exacerbates wealth inequality. I want to actually uh, uh, move on um, just to another question: of Are we in a bubble? I want to pose to you, Tom. Do you think that? Would you agree that there's a bubble in cash? Because when the the, when the Fed does quantitative easing, it uh, prints so much money, and I know I'm triggering some people. I'm aware that uh, bank reserves cannot be used to Create new loans, but it can be used to buy uh, bonds and 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 buy notes and bills and and the yield curve, which lowers yields, which creates uh, you know stimulates financing all across the thing, and that that stimulates asset prices. It's sort of the theory of hot potato. Uh, Tom, do you think that it the there's a bubble in cash or a bubble in res- bank reserves that is there's a contagion effect where that's spreading to uh, the asset markets, whether it's uh, bonds uh, um, like corporate bonds yields being so low. Or uh, the, the stock market as well.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I I look the repo um, daily operations have been over a trillion dollars every day, and that's just because the bank reserves they've got to park money somewhere. So they're sending it back to the Fed. They're getting five basis points. That's nominal. You know, the Fed's not going to go out and buy bonds. The but bo- bo- if they buy bonds and the real rate of return is negative. Which it is, it, it shows up as a liability on their balance sheet. It's not an asset. And there's controversy, and maybe in what I'm saying there, but it's really true that they, they, they don't want to necessarily go out and buy and get jammed in with, you know, in, in one of the auctions of high allocation. they They're managing their balance sheets the best they can. And, you know, some people say, "Well, why don't they just start lending it out to more people and companies?" You know, I think they're, I think they're, they have to be really careful on what they're lending, and you know, the, 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 what what tends to happen when banks are forced to lend, they start lending to people that should not be bought, buying, and that's what happened in the housing crisis. You know, it became too easy. My dog Jack could have gone on you know and put his paw on the keyboard and jack thornton bought you know a house in las vegas for 400,000 yeah it, that's kind of like how stupid the, the world was but look hey yeah talk. we have a lot of cash out there one thing that's not heavily in cash are client balances at brokerages yes client balances yeah. at brokerages it's really low another thing that's happened is leverage has started to peak and I think that's part of the Archegos debacle. And I think Prime Brokerages, you know, met Jesus and said we gotta look at all of our accounts and take down leverage and see who's at risk and put more, you know, curbs on some of the swap lending stuff that Archegos was doing. Tom, let me. So- let me ask you, you
1: a question. Talking about just the state of play where we are right now, and by the way, talking of debacles, my screen goofed up during the open today, uh, so I wanted to just restate this. PCE uh, price index up 0.4%, core PCE price index up 0.3%. Those are both month over month. Both are center of the range, so not much action there. What I wanted to ask you, Tommy, on uh, the uh, opening numbers that I was going through, these personal income uh, numbers, the personal consumption expenditure numbers, these numbers seem to be bouncing all over the place. Uh, When we look at things like trying to assess where we were month over month, I'm not sure I see a whole lot of significance in this data. Does this stuff matter? Specifically, are we in a position now where just the volatility, the whipsawing uh, of the, on the one hand, lockdown, followed by the reopening trade, has just made these numbers a little bit, well, not especially material, because there's just so much volatility, there's so much bounce, that it's hard to see if this really means anything at all.
3: Well, if you guys have had you know, economists on, on your show, which you have, I mean, they're they're so academic, and yeah. you know they're so close. You know this is the way they think. But they're talking all these year-over-year year comparisons, and we've never had a pandemic. And they're acting like these are the best numbers I've ever seen in my life, and I'm just amazed. And yeah. no kidding, people, are you nuts? I mean, this is a a. a one off in our lifetime, hopefully, yeah. type of event. So yeah, there's some, you know, there's volatility in that yeah. those numbers. Wait till the wait till some of the jobless benefits go away next month and people start having to go back to work, they're gonna have less income and you're gonna see that personal income drop. Remember, we we had, you know, like huge retail sales, huge personal income rise when everybody got their their stimulus check. Right. and then the next month it was like you know damn right. we're just going to have more of that and right. we're going to get we've got to get to some sort of normalization and that's well, that's coming
1: you know to, to exactly that point tommy i think that's that's spot on for year over year numbers you basically have to throw them out because you're looking at looking at uh, a base effect of the uh, worst economic uh, downturn we've ever seen in the history uh, of numbers, but even on a month over month basis, right, where you won't see those base effects uh, from comparing it to the depths of the crisis, even those month over month numbers to me, they just look jagged. It just looks like a, I don't know if you take an avocado and you throw it on the supermarket scale, you just see it go like this until it begins to settle down and so you you can measure these things right? You can measure them very precisely. Um, but is the precision and the significance maybe out of step? I ask you this, Tommy, precisely for the point you made. Because if you listen to academic economists, maybe sometimes you get a different view of the world. But when you listen to Tom Thornton, the guy who's sitting behind a Bloomberg terminal trading every day, how do you weigh that? Or do you just try and push some of that noise out of your consciousness so you can focus on the things that matter?
3: OK, so everybody looks at the city, you know, Economic Surprise Index. And this is set up, and and people don't know how to use it. And I, maybe I don't, but this is how I use it. When it's when it's going up like this, like it did in second quarter to 2020, it it was because we were beating numbers. It was just it was the bar was so low that eco, the economists set numbers so low that it just it was easy to beat. And now we've had it start to drop. And that's because you've had surprises on the downside, and economists are seeing this year over year you know these incredible numbers year over year, but month over month and quarter over quarter, they may not be going up as much as they had hoped, so sometimes when the that city economic surprise index goes down, it's just because the the numbers the, the economists are just way too high and on the opposite side um when it's going up the economists are too bearish and then it works it's, it's equilibrium and then they get on the wrong side of things again and that indicator goes up it's the worst thing to ever watch and think that you can use for market timing or really any any really good analysis other than saying
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Jack. Speaking of really good analysis and stuff that might be wrong, I know that you did an interview uh, around uh, carbon credits here. Some interesting and provocative statements there. Give us a little sense of what that was about and
2: set up the clip for us. Yeah, uh, Ash, I just want to uh, say quickly about uh, base effects, if if I may. That I think you yeah. two are preaching to the choir. I think that when we say something went up spending went up it went down relative to what it's relative to a month ago or relative to 365 days ago a year ago so we really are hostage to how many times the you know how long how many how long it takes the earth to revolve around the sun and often that is a very good metric because august of 2017 was a lot like august of 2016 but that is not true for this year because uh, covid Uh, For lack of a better word, it, it effed everything up. So When inflation prints were really hot in April of this year, it's because we were comparing to April of 2020, when we had a deflationary spiral. Likewise, when economic growth figures are themselves slowing down, they're very high relative to last year because of base effects, but they are less high than, say, the preceding month, everyone is saying that that's a cause of an economic slowdown. And when the second derivative, the rate of growth, slows down, Oh, that means that you're supposed to get out of cyclicals and buy bonds. And if you if you know inflation is running hot but there's no growth, sell your copper and buy some gold. But I think that that is, uh, you know, I think that people who do that could be drinking from a poison chalice. You got to you got to look at at uh, you know, follow the Fed and f- use the 18 month rate of change or maybe a 24 month rate of change. I mean, consumer spending is is up uh, is is up a great deal on a two month rate of change. Excuse me, a two year rate of change. It's only a yearly rate of change that it is falling. Um, so I, I would. I, I think that that is a, a huge mistake um, that people are making. And I think that a lot of economists are aware of it, but perhaps some investors. Are not. Uh, Ash, Check, I will.
1: That's very, that's very well said. And when you, Tommy, and I all agree on something, we must be on to something significant there. And by the way, it's not just base effect, it's also jaggediness, volatility in the data itself. We were talking about this uh, earlier uh, offline, you and I, in our usual nerdy uh, real vision uh, chat mode, talking about the, the idea of like, you know, you're selling toasters, right? So you sell about 500 toasters a month, 488 eight one month, uh, 507 toasters the next month, and then you don't sell any toasters toasters for 12 months, right? And you come back and you sell 3,000 toasters and then you sell like, I don't know 1,100 toasters and then 4,100 toasters. Like it's just this weirdness of the jaggediness of data that is separate and distinct from this other distorting effect, which is the base effect that you described so beautifully.
2: Yeah, and it's a relative effect. So I think you know, I'm a relatively tall person, I'm six foot four, but relative to Rao, who's six foot five, six foot six, I'm short, but does that mean that I'm short? No, it just means I'm short relative to Rao. And he and I both are short compared to Shaquille O'Neal. So everything is a is a relative game. But Jack, Ash, I refuse well, to believe
1: that. I, you're 6'11 and a half. I've walked down the street with you in Manhattan. There's no way you're six four.
2: I'm six four and a half. But you know, it's it, I don't want to round up, don't want to round down. I'm I'm stuck in the middle. But anyway, the, um so I did interview, I did an interview today uh with Mark Campanali of Carbon Track Tracker, uh, an investor. And the interviews on The Essentials here, by the way, investor who in 2011 called what he saw a carbon bubble. Basically, he saw the amount of gigatons that uh, humanity could emit and still have a chance of remaining within a two-degree warming cycle for for global warming. And he said that the assets on uh, the balance sheets of fossil fuel companies exceeds this limit by a great deal. So what what, uh, fossil fuel companies are counting as assets... If it is to be burned, it will uh, it will you know ruin the planet and be very bad. So it likely will not be burned. And as such, uh, it, you know it's it, it's a huge bubble, and you should not invest in it. And even though emissions actually still has um, you know not gone the way that he would want over the past decade, in terms of returns, he's been so prescient. And I said this on Twitter, and I don't think I was exaggerating that it was the greatest sector specific bearish call of the past decade. Like, find me someone who said, yeah, the utility sector is going to be down fifty percent. Or, or the real estate sector is going to be down 50%. So let's take a, let's take a, a look at the clip and then we'll talk about it.
4: Uh, we estimate at carbon tracker that there's around $32 trillion of fixed assets in the fossil fuel economy, pipelines, oil rigs, coal fired power stations. This, the, 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 around a third of maritime is shipping liquid fuels and natural gas. Um, and, And railroads carrying coal or whatever. So all of that, we're going to have to lose about half of that in the next decade of fixed assets. is going to have to be retired if we're to make this low-carbon transition. Uh, You would expect to see discussion of of early retirement, of oil and gas, write-downs and clean-up. You'd expect to see that in the accounts of companies. You're not seeing that in the accounts of companies. Why is that? Because the audit profession is probably too close to management. Um, signing off as going concerns assets, which really will have no basis in a low carbon world. Um, so we, we expect that those asset write downs will trigger bankruptcies within the fossil fuel sector. Um, and that obviously is where bondholders have to start to worry.
1: Well, there you have it. That's pretty interesting stuff. Maybe I'm not interpreting it right, Jack. Did I hear that correctly? Is he talking about retiring 50% of the carbon production? I'm not even sure I understood what he was saying there, but that sounds pretty significant. Substantial, really.
2: Yeah, well, pretty much- it's, 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 as I said, all, all of the uh, carbon assets, they, they cannot be burned, um, according to according to the science. Uh, it, it just So much damage has happened in the equity market. You look at the stock of you know XLE, ETF, which owns all the basket, or, or ExxonMobil, so much damage in terms of the stock. I think that for his thesis to continue to pro- be proven right, you have to see some, some real pain in the bond market, a lot of which is owned by... Uh, banks, CLOs, bond ETFs, but but Ash, we are running a bit short on time, yeah. and I know that people want to hear uh, from Tommy. So let's get some questions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Look, and, and definitely an interesting big picture thing. I need to get my head around something practical. We've been talking about macroeconomics. We've been talking about stuff like uh, carbon credits. I got a good question to that comes to us from DD, and the question is: Tom, are you considering getting back into Coinbase after selling out?
3: Not right now. I, I totally. I, I screwed that one up so bad, um, and I was early. My view was that there was going to be a short squeeze after their first earnings, and the stock would spike, and which happened. But I didn't anticipate the stock to drop as much as it did. So I'm out, I'm out for now. Uh, I'm a little bit cautious on crypto. Um, Maybe could see a little bit more on Bitcoin, but we're starting to get some Demark signals, and they've actually worked pretty well.
4: Yeah, uh,
2: Ash, if, if if I may, I actually no watched your interview with Tom, and where Tom made his call on Coinbase, and I actually have been getting in. And the more I think about it, the more I like the stock. And if you think, you know, there is something magical about centralization, about owning something where people work there. You don't just own code; you actually own a, a real thing with with profits. Um, I will. Uh, Jack, Jack, I, I thought you were supposed to be a millennial, man. I mean, yeah, you're Gen Z. You're not even a millennial. You're Gen Z. Where's well, the decentralization? Look, I mean, in the, the magic. I, I just think that you you should own some crypto related uh, businesses too. That that couldn't hurt. By the way, crypto, the crypto bear market. It was like it was like this. It was. It, I, I know uh, houseflies, Ash, that live longer than that crypto bear market. Blink and you miss it. Yeah. Really. All right. So we got ne- another question for Tom. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, JP wants to know how much more can construction materials rally?
3: Well, we've already seen a lot of construction materials fall back. Uh, You know, I think you need to watch the uh, the the housing starts and and the permits uh, and see, you know, how well that goes. And I look, I I think that there's. there's also a bit of a bubble in some of those areas. Uh, still, I think copper's still a little high. Uh, you've seen iron ore keep going, but that's other, you know, issues. Uh, but I, I'm I'm a little bit cautious on the housing market. I'm also thinking like uh, Julian Brigden that higher rates are coming, and that's going to put a slowdown on the housing market. There's there's less inventory out there in the world. And that could be fewer redo, you know, remodels going forward. So I'm I'm a little bit cautious, but I, I, I'll I'll think about it. Yeah, I'll put it on on Twitter.
1: I've got a great question here uh, from Simon Mon. I'm just going to simplify it a little bit. Simon's interested in knowing, Tom, uh, what the percentage success rate you have uh, with DeMarc indicators uh, for negative signals.
3: It depends on really the time frame, uh, you know. I look at it. I've always looked at it where it's like a sixty forty type trade, and it, you know a lot of people that when they, they see uh, the DeMarc thirteen sequential sell signal, they are expecting nineteen eighty seven to happen, and we just had one. It pulled back to the seven, you know the fifty day moving average. It pulled back three percent. It did what it was supposed to do, which was a pull back or exhaust. And a lot of times. The signals will just, you know, see something and it'll go sideways for a while. Um, you know, I, I think it's like sixty forty. There's other indicators that I combine with it, so that's part of it. But you know, it 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 hasn't been as fruitful in a market that just goes up.
1: Yeah. Tom, we got what time for, I think, one more question here. Uh, this one comes to us from Tim O'Neill. Uh, and the question is, how would you trade NG, that's natural gas, uh, and oil with a major hurricane bearing down? I'm really curious about this in this specific question, but also uh, in terms of how you think about the more general case. When you see an event like a hurricane, how do you think about that, particularly in regard uh, to a natural resources or energy
3: trade? Right. Uh- Usually, what happens is they run up into the hurricane, and the the, the hurricane will start to it will become a tropical storm, and wham, they, the prices go right back down. So it's it's almost you, you you buy the the start of it and the fear, and then you sell the you know once you're past it, and or yeah. you know right when you get to it, and that that generally is what it, what. What tends to happen? I mean, there's outliers of you know Cat Five hurricanes that go into, you know, Katrina's where that was a little extreme, right? But still, they tend any type of thing like that where there's a supply shock, you know, it goes up. Supply shock, and then once the 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 event ends, yeah, uh, or gets close, it's it sells. I mean, most people start buying at the highs as well. They oh, we got a hurricane, we better. We better right. buy some crude and
1: natural gas. Sounds like you've got to be early and nimble on that trade. Talking of trades, Jack, I understand you have one more trade you wanted to talk about.
2: Yeah, it's it's a trade that Tom has his radar on. His radar, I know a lot of people watching saying, "Hmm, Tommy's got this macro view. That's really interesting. He's he's quite bearish, but how is he going about expressing that view in the markets where you know the pain is real, the pleasure is real? It's it all is all you know, uh, blood, sweat, and tears." Let's get into it. Uh Tom, you have a spread trade where uh right. buying a put spread, uh, buying a put and then selling it uh by basically with, with a with a collar of some sort.
3: Um tell right. us it's about a put spread. Trades. So you you buy the you buy the top strike and you sell the the uh lower strike uh equal you can I, I do equal amounts on both strikes. So I I I like an October SPY expiration in October um one, uh, excuse me, 444, 419 put spread. That's $25 uh, for approximately $390. Might have got a little, you might get a little lower tomorrow or Monday. Uh, but I like that. And then the Q's October 370 to 350 put spread for 375. And the way I see this is you have about if it goes through the lower strike, which would be a 7%. Pullback, seven percent pullbacks, not that hard, and it would take you back to like beginning of July. you would you would make around five five x uh, what you put in. But don't go nuts, everybody. It's out of the money, and it's it's a hedge. Um, and if it works, you'll be very, very happy. You don't need to put too much in.
1: Tom, I love it. Closing out the show, closing out the day, closing out the week with a nuts and bolts trade. Uh, Jack, thanks for joining us, as always. Tom, always a pleasure to have you on as our guest.
3: Yeah, love being here. See you guys soon.
1: Thanks for joining us, everybody. And thanks, as always, for your questions.